All right. Hello and welcome to Just Animals Podcast. I'm your host, Elle, and with me as always is my dad, aka Guy. Hello, pod world. And back again, Sam the Zookeeper. So real quick before we get started, we're going to play my favorite game, which is Guy Guess That Sound. So I'm going to play a sound real quick. Oh, this is something from a porno flick or something. (laughs) I'm sorry. What did you just say? I said it's something from a porno flick. I hear heavy breathing or something. How many pornos do you watch that you know that that's from porn? I don't know. I'm just uh, I'm just projecting. Do you watch that much porn to know? I don't watch any porn. Bullshit. Okay. Anyways, I'm sure Sam's probably like, I'm never Wait, doing this you again. Heard, was that the no. sound? That, <laughs> that was the sound? Yeah, that low vibrating sound. Yes. Okay. So any guesses? Because it's not a porn. It's not a porn. Uh I'm, I I don't know. It's probably some big animal that's making... Is it a whale that's making a sound that... Um... Nope. Terrestrial animal. Also, Sam, I'm sorry. Introduce yourself and say hi oh, <laughs> to our listeners. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I, hey, everybody. <laughs> also, sidebar, thank you everyone for listening, um, especially to our listeners on Spotify. We have, we're right at 19 listeners on Spotify, so thank you. 19. Most of you guys are actually in New Zealand, so what's up to our Kiwi friends? Please do us a favor. Go ahead and I won't ramble too long, but go ahead, share us with people you do like or don't like and, you know, help us spread the word about our podcast, especially now that we have an actual animal expert on here. We're more legit now. I thought you were going to uh, refer us to your one friend. What happened? I did. And my mom. (laughs) I thought it's at least two. You're going to associate with those guys. We are done with you, Sam. Bye. (laughs) Fine then. (laughs) All right. So episode 19, the cassowary. The what? Cassowary. Look Cassowary. It up. Hold on. Yes. You know what? I'm I'm sitting here on the floor. I have to get my laptop down because I can't. All right. Hopefully, I won't unplug the mic. Go ahead, cassowary. Don't don't. Okay. Hold yeah. Me. So, uh, the name cassowary comes from two pop one words meaning horned head. Common names: southern cassowary, cassowary. The root of their name actually means bony cask, and which is what they have on top of their heads, which we'll discuss more a little bit later. Oh, wait a minute. And, is this the Velociraptor? Yes. Oh, I'm glad we're doing this one. Yes. Me yes. too. So, These are my favorite. Like Sam introduced us to a... Yes. Yeah. So, Who knew Australian we or double... Wa- what? Who knew we still had dinosaurs around? It's pretty much every bird and alligator and crocodile. Yeah, but this one is like really... Uh, okay, go ahead. I'm let you get into it. I want to disrupt. Okay, so Australian or double water cassowary, which Sam is going to be so ever so kind to explain what that means to us. Okay, yes. So um, I'll go into. I'll tell you what the double waddled means, but uh, I guess I'll also say that um, besides the southern, aka double wattle cassowary. There are two other subspecies of cassowary. There's the northern, which is also called the single wattled, and there's also the dwarf cassowary. So on the southern cassowary, which is the only species I've ever worked with, um, the wattles that they're referring to are uh, two red, kind of long, and this is what they look like, and this is the best way I can explain it, but they look like wrinkled up scrotums that don't have testicles in them. Wow. So, and they're just hanging from their necks. Um, so the double wattled cassowaries are the ones that you can, you can, are most noticeable. They're the most no- noticeable neck appendages. Um, they hang low and they hang loose and they flop around just like you would imagine a wrinkled testicle scrotum. And then <laughs> seriously. Wow. Wow. And no, then, you're right. You're right. That, that's the, I mean, you're absolutely yeah, When right. they run fast, boy, they just flop right back and forth. It's, it's quite the scene. Uh, I would imagine so. My goodness, yeah, it's funny. Have, have you ever encountered a live cassowary? Have you? Uh, uh, oh yes, yes. yes. Hey, wait a I've second. You're getting ahead. Okay. So, ahead. 
Um, to go on about the other ones, the single wattle cassowary is just what it says. They just have one single one of those things, but it does not look like the double wattle cassowary's wattles. Um, it's just like a weird short protrusion that looks like a long skin tag. And it's also yellow colored instead of red because that's the color of their necks are yellow. And then the dwarf cassowaries don't even have a wattle at all. And um, so- all- yo, go ahead. So all, what you're saying is you have like the Lance Armstrong version of the bird and then the regular version and then the completely absent version. That's yes. That is exactly true. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yes. Oh, now I want a single wild okay. cassowary named Lance. Um, but just real there quick, uh, when we're referring to the cassowaries that I've worked with, I just want to say that their names were Ginger and Sydney. So if I say Ging, Ginger or Sid or Sydney during this whole time, that's what I'm talking about. Ginger was our female and Sydney was the male. And I'll be saying okay. their names probably quite a bit. And okay. Were they single or double? They were double, double. waddles. Yes. Double. She said that's the only one she worked with. Come on now. No, these things will mess you up. No shit. Uh, any fucking bird will fuck you up. Given no, no, the opportunity. No, no. These things, they have a picture of this. I saw this on the web when I when we first talked about this thing, where the feet, the fangs were going through a door. Like the, the fangs? Of, yeah. What, what, isn't that what you call them? Are you shitting me? The claws? Where do fangs the usually go? Claws. Talons. The claws. Yeah, the talons went through a door. Fangs. Like the guy was holding up a door and, and their feet kicked through the door somehow. Fangs are usually in the mouth, just FYI. Okay. The, 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 what do we call it's them? Talons. Do talons. the chickens have large talons? <laughs> That's what yeah, I this- thought of the whole time I was talking about it. I was going to talk about what we were talking about. I just, Napoleon Dynamite. They have yep. large talons. The chickens have large talons. <laughs> anyway, so size, stature, and description and lifespan, aside from the fact that these are basically walking dinosaurs, just imagine a prehistoric giant AF turkey. Um, they're also known as ratites. I don't know if I said that correctly. Sam, ratites, totally yeah, correctly, right? ratites, yes. Which are large flightless birds, which include emus and ostrich, and also kiwis. And is it rays? Rias. Oh, rias. Okay, like gonorrhea. Got it. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> you guys are going off the rails already. You really? Okay, anyways. So, Wayne, you called talons fangs. So, don't even start. So, weighing in at 121 pounds or 55 kgs for males. And 167 pounds or 76 kgs for females, making these birds the second heaviest birds in the world after their cousin, the ostrich. They can also reach a height of 5.8 feet, and some can reach a height of 6.6 feet. Okay, Surprisingly, so the ostrich, are they related to the emu as well, or no? Are you not listening? They said the ostrich. Um, what did you, you said ostrich. You didn't say anything about an emu. Sam, back me up here. I said emu. She did say emu. She said that they're in the ratite family with the emus, ostriches, and kiwis and rias. That's the ratite is emus and ostriches. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, but I'll bet these birds when they sit when when if you put those three together and this one comes in, I'm sure they're going to part ways and give this one a wide berth. Yes, and that actually would be cool, like kind of a bird fight club situation. I don't know ethically. After how good that would be, but I mean, I would not also not not want to see it if that makes sense. <laughs> as horrible as it would be, I would also want to see it too. But anyways, okay, back to their description. So surprisingly, they are only the third largest birds in the world. As for what they look like, just imagine a really fluffy velociraptor. Their bodies are covered in very plush and satin-like black feathers. It should also be noted that they do not have a tail. And anyways, if you go down to their monster looking legs, you will see that they are featherless, very muscular and very heavy. At the end of their legs are their three huge toes, not fangs, one of which is a dagger shape and it can grow up to 120 millimeters or five inches in length. And the purpose of this, we will discuss in our characteristics and traits section. And I'm sure Sam can go into even more detail about this. And lastly, and perhaps their most unique and distinguished feature would be their cask, aka their big old brown helmets on the tops of their heads. It is believed that they grow with age. And again, we will go into further detail about this in our trait section. So while their average lifespan in the wild is still unknown, in captivity, they can be as old as 60. And Sam, what would you say their average lifespan in the wild is if based on what you know and your knowledge? Actually, um, there, there's that we really don't know. Um, their wild lifespan is 
totally unknown, but um, I've seen it speculated in like different articles and things. They've speculated it sometimes between 35 to 50 years, which is, I know, a huge range, but that's what they say. Uh, but knowing how fast humans are depleting and polluting their forests and resources, I'm betting on the lower number to be more accurate. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, uh, Guy, how would you describe this thing? It's a velociraptor. That's what it is. It's a modern day velociraptor. And okay, so we're just, just fuck, oh, fuck being a bird. It's just a velociraptor. Got it. It, it. it was a velociraptor with fancy coat on it. and uh, <laughs> It's ready for New York Fashion Week, right? It will attack Fashion. you. And have you did you ever have any run after you, Sam, or were you pretty nice? No, no, we were never in the same area. I mean, between the fence, they would run at the fence and stuff, but we were not allowed to go with these things, nor would we ever want to. Um, so they never like ran after us or anything. But yeah, I think I'd rather be in the cage with an alligator than this thing here. Because... Yeah, I did. We did go in with the alligators, but I guess we can talk about that later. But we did actually go in the alligators. I, it's much, very... much safer. Alligators much safer yeah. than than one of these. Wow. For sure. Dangerous animal. Interesting wow. that the alligator is safer. I, f I mean, I figure if both of those things are hungry, you're kind of screwed either way. I don't way. know if you're going to talk about attacks, but there's a whole... We are, we we will. We okay, will. So save it. A big it. section on attacks. Oh, yes. Uh -oh. Save it and also come lean in closer to your bike. Involved. Okay. Very good. Well, I'm, I'm standing by for, I'll wait for the attacks version uh, section. Go ahead. Okay. So as for their habitat in indigenous area, these avians can be found in Northern Australia, New Guinea, and the Indonesian islands of Saram and Iru. I probably butchered those. Sorry, Indonesia. <laughs> in Australia, they used to have a much wider range. However, there are now three populations found in two different areas. One population is in the wet tropics and the other two are in Cape York. Again, these are up in Northern Australia and Queensland. It should be noted that only the Southern cassowary is found in Australia. And this is also the one that we are discussing today. Nah, just FYI. And more specifically, they are found in dense tropical rainforests. In Queensland alone, the average humidity is 73% and the average temperature is 80 degrees with little to no variation in temperature between day and night. In addition to dense rainforests, they can also be found in swamps, mangrove forests, woodlands, and every now and then they can be seen foraging on beaches. That was probably my favorite thing when I like was looking up and researching was just seeing this giant ass bird hanging out on the beach. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty cool. Uh, they will inhabit the same small area year round. And as for why they are in rainforests, it's because of their diet. Rainforests have high numbers of fruiting plant species, and these animals need a year round supply of fleshy fruit. Now, since Sam worked with them in the zoo setting, I'm going to have her go ahead and explain to us what their exhibit looked like and what kind of things and features and amenities, I guess, amenities that they had for them. Sam, did you work with them in Florida? Yes, I or did. No? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, let me just, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt your, your spiel here. Another human death due to a cassowary was recorded in Florida on April 12, 2019. The bird's owner, a 75-year-old man who had raised the animal, was apparently clawed to death after mm -hmm. he fell to the ground. All yeah. right. You go, girl. Yeah. Well, why yeah. is it always Florida, man? Yeah. Florida, Florida and Florida Texas. Man. Florida yeah. and Texas are the two absolute worst states um, with people being able to pretty much own, buy, do whatever they want with any kind of animal. It's the two states that I've worked um, in zoos in were the two that had the worst laws about what you can and can't have. And yeah, Florida's definitely. Uh, got some crazies. And that's so crazy because here in California, if you get caught with a ferret, they put it down. Yeah. But, you know, Florida, you can have a the owner of the ferret. Both. <laughs> yeah, they have pet stores in Florida. Um, I'm not going to say what the name of it was, but there was one that was pretty popular in the town that I lived in, and they sold sloths, lemurs, um, all kinds of crazy, weird, exotic birds that people shouldn't. Toucans. I, I mean, toucans, whatever. But sloths, we actually yeah, no, you, had. You shouldn't be having a sloth. Yeah, no, that's we had a sloth. Taken over by uh, the damn snakes. What's that? The uh, boa constrictors or what? Pythons. Pythons. Yeah, that should never be in the in the Everglades. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, we had a um, at the zoo I worked at. We had a sloth that was bought at this place, and of course, they had it and didn't take very good care of it, and couldn't take of care not. of it, and it would became too much so they said here you have it and of course we took it we're not gonna you know right not gonna turn that away jesus is it a three or two tone oh it was a three 
There's not many two-toed in, in, um, there's a two-toed in the Dallas Aquarium I know about, but there's not very many two-toed in these, in these parts, in zoos. You don't have to worry about a sloth running after you, that's for sure. (laughs) No, no, gosh, they're so cute. They are super cute. I prefer the two-toed personally, but anyways, back to Sydney and Ginger's exhibit. Yes, sorry. Okay, no so real quick, we did have, um, we, of course, we had two exhibits, one for each of them, uh, because they could ah. not be together. Uh, that, <laughs> their two exhibits were split by special super strong zoo fencing, um, so they could see each other if they both went in deep into their woods, like in their little areas, um, that they could see each other if they wanted to. Um, they were also separated by sliding, go- sliding doors that we could open so we could make both exhibits one huge circle. Um, and that was super handy during breeding time uh, because Ginger would always initially chase Sydney when we first put them together just because that's the way they are. Um, and she, so she could never corner them in a corner. So he got scared or anything or, or felt like he was going to get attacked. So that was um, so they could go in a circle when we needed them to. And then um, we had a space, there was space where we could shift them in one at a time into a big barn and they each had their own stalls. So if we needed to put them inside for any reason for weather or exhibit maintenance or anything like that, um, they had access to a barn as well. And um, then we would also routinely switch them up just so they could each have um, variety in what they saw and what they uh, interacted with every day. Uh, The side that we called Ginger's side had a huge pond that was deep enough for her to bathe in to get her whole big body into and dunk her head. And then she had a huge uh, open grassy area that had a lot of fern type bushes along the fence line. Um, And they liked to lay in those bushes and rest during the day. And it's where guests could still see them. Um, and then her side also had that deep, uh, little forested area with huge, large trees, um, where she could go if she didn't want to be bothered by the public or if she didn't want to be seen. And then Sydney's side didn't have a pond. Um, he had mostly just big, large trees, a lot of palm trees, um, and kind of densely wooded. Um, it would be, sometimes it would be hard to find them in there. So, um, for public viewing, it was so forested. Um, sometimes they couldn't see them. Uh, but he did have like little bare areas where he'd come out and people could see him. Um, and then that's all. And then we, I mean, we tried to make their exhibits as close as we could to what they would have in the wild. So they'd be content. And I think we did a good job with that. And that's all. I mean, it sounds like it, if you couldn't even see them. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was one of my favorite parts about going to a zoo is, is actually going and not being able to see an animal because it means they have so much space that they can either get away and I can't see them or they have a, a good visual uh, barrier to go behind because you know the public can be relentless sometimes. Yes, so, and the word, we have. I like going to the zoo and not seeing that. animals. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you, the only person. Yeah. So as for their diet, these animals are no are known as are. I cannot talk today. These animals are known as frugivores, so much like a kinkajou that we did a couple episodes back. Eating meaning their diet may, mostly consists of fruit. However, they will eat. Um, little insects and little small vertebrates and even carrion, which is, you know, that those like dead animal carcasses. And seeing as how these big old dump trucks can't fly, they actually eat fallen fruit. So all the really ripe fruit that has fallen to the ground, that's what they eat. They're obviously not flying up into trees to take off some fruit. And according to David Attenborough, they turn to eating fungus when food is scarce. And over 238 plant species have been recorded to be a part of the cassowary diet. They need up to five kgs or 11 pounds of fruit a day. And Sam, what would you feed them in the zoo? Or like, what's the zoo cassowary diet like? Uh, Well, just like with Josie, the taper that I talked about, um, all the animals had a base diet of grain, which was specially formulated for ratites um, that came in big bags and was made by a big company. Uh, But of course, we added a ton of fruit. You know, they needed 11 pounds a day. They got 11 pounds a day. We ate, we fed them so much fruit and they would eat any fruit, strawberries, uh, grapes were ginger's absolute favorites, blueberries, bananas, apples, all the fruits. Um, and also we added steamed sweet potato because they just 
they just loved it. And then um, during breeding season, we would make sure to feed Ginger um, some chicken chicks or some mice just for a little bit of extra <laughs> needed nutrition and calcium for that egg making. Um, they both actually did enjoy a little snack of uh, chicken or mouse sometimes um, when we had extras to give. So we we just give them extras um, when we had them. And just to let everybody know, these were not alive. They came from a company right. already dead and frozen. We just had to thaw them out. And they also ate exactly what you're about to talk about right now. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Reiner. Yes. So uh, I want to know if you used a drone to drop this food into these uh, cages. <laughs> no, we didn't. No, we didn't. We just, um, I, we, I could hand feed them. I trained them all the time. So um, they're not aggressive eaters. So, um, and when they're used to it, you just, you just stick a little grape up and, ginger would just eat it they they would i mean they'd come at you that you know i can't explain it but you know they'd come at it with their mouths open and just take it right out of your hand so they they weren't really aggressive if when you had food in base eight because you're missing a finger on each hand got it yeah (laughs) no no i they weren't they weren't like that they wouldn't take a finger off it it was very i felt very comfortable hand feeding them interesting the ones that you had acquired at the zoo were they um raised from babies or were they brought in as adults how was that what was no they were they were both uh hatched out in zoos ginger i don't not sure where she came from but she came from a different zoo and we got her when she was uh, already an adult um but sydney was hand raised um he was raised by a guy who had worked at the zoo for a long time and um so he i think he came as a baby he was already hatched but he was a teeny tiny baby still a baby chick and um the guy there hand raised him until he got to that point of being way too strong and way too dangerous to be anywhere inside his space um, so Sydney was hand raised, but only to the point where it was, okay, he's way too big and, and too, too crazy to go in there with him. So that's, but Ginger was, I think, um, parent or parent raised, but was sent to us as an adult. Interesting. Very good question. So yeah, it was good last question. thing, yeah, last thing that's on their diet, um, these animals literally eat shit. <laughs> Not only will they eat their own shit, but they'll eat other cassowaries' shit too. And guy, can you guess why that is? Why they eat their own poop? Yeah, but they eat others. They they eat others' poop too. Like, oh, you know what? Hey, more cassowary shit. Not my shit, protein. but somebody else's There's shit. Protein. I'll eat it. What? There's protein in poop. Not that I've ever eaten it, but <laughs> sounds like you are the shit eating expert. No, the your dog used to eat poop. He has never eaten shit. Well, not that dog. Your other dog. Oh, Rusty? Yeah. Well, anyways, so their poop contains only partially digested fruit that still has plenty of nutritional value. So, ergo, it's pretty much like a second meal (laughs) before you even know it. And as for how they eat, they toss their food in the air and then swallow it whole. As for solitary or pack animals, I'm sure Sam already knows the answer to this. but solitary. They will kill each other, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Sam. Yep, they sure will. Well, Sam, it wouldn't be fair for Sam to answer. <laughs> she obviously well, no, knows. I mean, yeah. So they, these animals they are, super are solitary. Right. Sorry. So these animals are solitary. If a male encroaches on another male's territory, they will hiss and have a squabble about it. If a male finds himself in a female's territory, he will immediately leave while while making and acting very submissively. Uh, females are actually the dominant sex in this in, in this pair of bird species. I don't know why I said pair. Pair doesn't make sense. But anyways, uh, the only time you ever see cassowaries together would be during mating season and right after chicks have been born. So Sam kind of already addressed this as for how they do it in the zoos. Like if they're able to keep two of them together in the same enclosure or if they have to each have their own enclosure. So I'll just let her reiterate some of that real quick. Okay. I'll just talk about what we we did during breeding season. So of course, all throughout the year, except for breeding season, they were definitely not ever put together um, on purpose. And we always tried to make it not to have an accident. Um, so Ginger would have definitely 
either injured or or killed Sydney in a heartbeat. She was just that type of lady. Um, so Good for her, yeah. But but he was such a sweet sweet boy. It, it was it was funny to see. Um, so during the breeding time, uh, we would leave it up to Ginger uh, if she wanted to sit in there with her or not. Um, we would go ahead and open their doors and wait until Ginger was done chasing sit around because that's what always happened as soon as we opened the doors before she would calm herself down and just let him be. Um, if she allowed him to get near her for an extended extended period of time. Um, or if she cushed, which meant that she laid down in her, into her breeding position to allow him to get behind her, uh, we would leave them for the day. And then we would just keep periodically checking on them to make sure everything continued to be copacetic. Um, and then uh, we would occasionally see them breeding, which was fantastic. Uh, but there were a couple, the only, uh, there were only a couple of nights at the height of sexy time that we uh, felt comfortable enough leaving them together overnight. Uh, so usually we would separate them by the end of the day when we had to go home. Uh, there was only very few nights out of the breeding season where we would be okay and thought that they would, and, and they were okay overnight. Gotcha. And that's how we did it. Question, um, Sam. Yes. Uh, how long does the mom take care of the babies because uh, oh, oh we'll talk about this later but she does not she she does not she lays the eggs and she leaves she doesn't out. even incubate the eggs the males nope. do everything um, we can talk about that in breeding but she doesn't do a thing she's she is not involved whatsoever the only thing she does is lay the eggs yep That's yeah it's very very penguin like <laughs> come closer to your mic so like, as for, this is not the future for mankind. Eh. As for behavior, these ber- these birds are diurnal, meaning that they are active during daylight hours. And like most animals that live in really hot climates, they're most active in the morning and late in the day and usually rest during the middle of the day. They spend around 35% of the day foraging, so looking around for food. These birds are also very territorial and they do not like to share their space, especially with the same sex. However, a female's home range will usually encompass a few males' home ranges. A female's home range is usually three to six times larger than the average male's home range, too. And again, since they are solitary creatures, they rarely come in contact with each other in the wild. And if they do, they will absolutely defend their space. They are so territorial and solitary that if a dad and chicks were to come across a female, she will actually kick them out of her space. Even if the chicks are hers, it doesn't matter. The chicks could be hers, could not be hers. She's like, no, get your babies and get out. Bitch. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Take your little shits and get out. So females, like I said earlier, are dominant to males. Ergo, males will retreat when a female raises her neck. When a territory and mate disputes do occur, they will do what is called a stretch display in which they will stretch their necks and bodies vertically. They'll raise their feathers on the lower body and extend their wings out to appear larger. If confrontations escalate, the birds will charge each other and jump into the air and kick out with both of their feet. So Sam, actually, I have a few questions. Um... You kind of already answered this though about their behavior, what their behavior is like in a zoo setting. And then one other question, which sex was easier to work with in your opinion? Was the male easier to deal with or was the female easier to deal with? You just said the male, but (laughs) yeah. I said yeah. Well, I've only worked with two, one one of each sex, but definitely the males. Sydney was so much easier um, to train. Uh, he was more motivated to work with me. Uh, he seemed more into wanting to interact and be involved in what we were doing. Um, he did sometimes chest bump the fence and hiss, but it was way cuter and a little less menacing than when um, Ginger did it with her sassy attitude. Um, Ginger was a little bit slower moving and lackadaisical when it came to training her. Uh, she didn't really care to impress anyone. Uh, she would sometimes space out and have absolutely no interest in interacting with any of us. Um, so basically he was, he was, I, he was just a big goofy noob and she was an intimidating force to be reckoned with lady with a pretentious attitude problem, but I love them equally. Just got to say that they were, I love them both equally, just in, in different ways for different reasons, but they were, they were fantastic. They were actually one of my absolute favorite animals to work with and definitely one of my favorite species of birds. Sam, has anyone ever done a, a, a study or DNA test to see how they compare or contrast versus a velociraptor? I don't know if we have velociraptor DNA. Where are you getting velociraptor DNA from? Well, I don't know, from like amber or some shit like that, you know, Jurassic Park kind of stuff. 
No, not that I know of. I've never read anything about anything like that. So not that I know of, but it would be amazing if they did. But I'm sure they're I'm sure they're pretty closely related. I don't yeah. think um I don't think cassowaries have changed that much over over quite a few few just a few years. Yeah, uh, right. But yeah, they're they're very close to to being probably what what they looked like back in the day. There was something on the web that I looked at. I don't remember the site, but it showed the skeleton of a cassowary versus the skeleton of a velociraptor. Mm-hmm. It looked like they look like they're twins, but <laughs> more on that later, I guess. Yeah. So real quick though, do you think maybe Sydney's like ease of trainability and working with had to do anything with him being, you know, like human raised? Do you think maybe that's kind may, of contributed it, a little bit to it or yes or no? It may have been a little bit, but I think also, um, like you said, even when they in the wild, when they come across you know, a female, they are a little bit, they're submissive. They're just, they're right. just naturally more submissive and, and pretty much calmer than, than females. Females are just, they're just mean and sassy. Um, like so a stallion I, basically. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe um, it may have something to do with him being raised for how, like a um, couple months with somebody no, and being used to humans. But I, I think also it's natural behaviors as well of, of just being them a little bit more submissive than females. Right. Yeah. And on the more like, okay, we'll do what you want. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. You so as it just be crazy. <laughs> right. Okay. So as for means of communication, they communicate by using what are called loud, deep roars, which is what we heard at the very beginning when we played Guy Guess That Sound. That wasn't a roar. That was like a. You're right. It was a rumble. Excuse me. Right. I'll take rumble for 200, Alex. Rumble in the jungle. Oh my God. Turn off your notifications. Jesus Christ. I think it's my tablet. Go ahead. Fuck your tablet. Break (laughs) that fucking thing. Get get on with the show. Anyways, so some suggest that these birds make the lowest vocalizations out of all the birds in the world. Their low frequency calls have been measured as far down as 23 hertz which is at the super low end of the sound frequencies threshold for human hearing. So I would imagine they probably make noises that are even lower than that, if that's like what we can pick up. Uh, They're not known to make calls outside of breeding season. And a call will last for two seconds and be repeated for three minutes or longer. They're also known to hiss, like Sam said. And then actually, yeah, Sam, did you ever hear any cassowary noises or hissing when you were working with them? Oh, yes, all the time. Um, Ginger would hiss and jump at men usually constantly. Um, <laughs> we had just a little story. We had a male keeper on the team for a while. And every, every single time that he went down to her area to take care of her with food, without food, she would just bum rush the fence as fast as she could, hiss and spit at him and get super angry about it. Um, <laughs> she she did this a lot less to us women, um, but she would still do it at times when she was startled or there was a certain place along her fence line that we had um, this cloth hanging up. So she had like a visual barrier um, where the public couldn't see her um, and she didn't know who was on the other side. So it was usually when she was startled with the girls. And then um, that we used to call it booming. It, it sounded like a, a weird booming voice, but it was booming and grunt like noises. Those were the best ones to hear. Um, and, but like you were saying, uh, those frequencies got so low that they absolutely made noises that we couldn't hear. And those were the the neatest ones to actually see and watch. Um, you could tell that they were making these noises because you could see the throat inflate a little bit. We could, we could tell they were making noises with their throats. Right. Um, right. And you could tell that they were communicating with each other because of their body postures and the behaviors right. that they would do while they were doing this. Um, but honestly, we couldn't hear a thing. Uh, but the booms at the lowest frequency were, were the really, really cool ones to hear. Or not That's hear, super. just see, I guess. Did she ever kick the guy in the nuts after sex? I don't know. You know, just um, so that's a funny. That's a funny question. Um, she didn't <laughs> kick him in the nuts, but when she was done, if he was done or not, when she when she wanted to be over, she would jump up, turn around, and just chase him as fast as she could. And that was <laughs> that's why we had to keep those doors open, man. If if she was done, or if he. Um, was taken too long she'd be like all right this is this is over we're done and she would get super mad and start chasing him around luckily she never came in contact with him or or really ever kicked at him um, because they can't really run and kick at the same time but they'd get running around in that circle real fast right after you know when she was done 
Right. She's like, okay, you're taking too long. Yep. Get off me. That <laughs> happened a lot. <laughs> oh, Poor guy. Yeah, it was funny. So as for when breeding season is, it's not really well known. It's presumed that it takes place from June to November. I don't know, Sam, if you can corroborate that when yeah, they were so, in the mood or while Ginger was in the mood. Right. So um, we went by what everybody else says that in, in Australia, it's from there. It's from June to November in Australia, which, of course, is the southern hemisphere. So we had these animals in the northern hemisphere and in Florida. Um, so we had to change it up a bit. And we used our seasons um, that were kind of analogous to their seasons. And uh, we put uh, started putting Ging and Sin together uh, starting in February. And we let them go February, March. And we let them go till about May or early April. So we just had to play with that a little bit. And we just went, we just kind of went with what the seasons were like in Australia over here. Gotcha. Cool. So either sex can initiate mating. Usually a female will call out and then a male will put on a display. If the female approves, she will lead the male deep into the forest where a month-long courtship and mating period will begin. And then kill Interesting. Them. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's like lure you to a rape and then strangle you after. I, would, but. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Interestingly enough, just like the wolverine, the female's eggs can be fertilized by different males having up to four different partners in a breeding season. And the male actually prepares the nest. The female lays around three to six eggs in a clutch and she then bails. She's like, all right, here are your eggs. Peace out. And so if you have not seen a cassowary egg, I highly suggest looking it up. They are huge and bright green. They're about five inches long and three inches in circumference and can weigh up to 20 ounces. So that's over a pound. And Sam, actually, have you ever handled cassowary eggs before? These giant ass eggs? Yes, they're awesome. And they are huge. And they are a really pretty lime green. And I actually have one of Ginger's. Um, after a lot of trial and error by poor little Sid, um, because when we first started putting them together, it was his first time of doing anything with her. And he had no idea what he was doing or how to do it. But eventually they did mate and Ginger did lay eggs a few times in the lovely little nest that he had worked so hard to build. But unfortunately, None of these eggs um, that she ever laid were viable, meaning that they weren't even fertilized. Right. Uh, but oh. of course, yeah. But of course, we didn't know that until it was right. well past the time for Sydney to be a dad, and we had to take the eggs away from him. Um, so that's how I got to keep one of the eggs. I drilled a hole in it and drained all the insides out, and I keep it in a special place here. And uh, we didn't know it at the time, but Sydney had testicular cancer, and it and he was not fertile because of it. But we, of course, we didn't oh. know that, and we didn't find out until actually he died from that testicular cancer and the necropsy results came back so Aww. that's why we never had any babies and we were super bummed and of course we were bummed when he died but at least right. we know that it was an actual problem with him and and not not just us having bad luck and not knowing right what yeah not something on like the zoo's part right oh right. that's so unfortunate to hear that though poor guy yeah it was a sad day yeah because she kicked him <laughs> no she didn't <laughs> right in the balls Right. Anyway, so the male will incubate the eggs for around 50 days and he will continuously roll them over. You know, like the hot dogs you've seen in 7-Eleven that have probably been sitting on there for a month that just continuously roll. Looks a lot like that. And that's to keep them at an even temperature. And during this time, the male will lose some weight. And once the chicks hatch, they're usually able to be independent around nine months of age. And, and can, can I just yes. interrupt you real quick? Yes. I just, as a side of note. Course. I just, as a side note, I just want to reiterate this, and I know we just talked about it a little bit, but if y'all didn't catch that, the males are the only ones that do all, all of the chick rearing uh, from the incubating of the eggs for the entire time and, and rolling them around like 7-Eleven hot dogs uh, to teaching the chicks how to become successful, well-adjusted cassowaries. The female has absolutely nothing to do with it. And this is seen in other animal species as well, but it is way less common than the mother being the main and sometimes only kid caretaker. This was one of the the cool things during the the keeper chat that people were like, "What? The mom doesn't do anything?" And we were like, "Yeah, man, it's Dead all it's all the, all Sydney." We, we, we don't like this to get out and shouldn't be over the air. <laughs> to get ideas that this is uh, the wave of the future here. So, oh, that men can take care of their own fucking kids. Oh, what nah. a what a shame. Yeah, but it's it's right. a it's a neat little trivia fact that that really got people thinking. I'm sure it did. And I'm sure some moms were like, you're watching the kids more. Fuck mm -hmm. you. <laughs> well, um, you know, I got to give it to those cassowary dads. Uh, more power to you. <laughs> right. Single dads. Yikes. Yep. I mean, any single parent. Yikes. 
power to you. As for the unique characteristics and traits, personally, I have always wondered anatomically what makes birds flightless. So it turns out that like other like their other flightless cousins, their breastbone is flat and therefore it cannot support the necessary musculature that is required for flight. And as for their helmet, aka cask, it is covered in a sheath of keratin, which is what your fingernails are made out of, and it actually starts to develop around two years of age. There are a couple working theories and hypotheses about what, what it does and its purpose. One theory is that it may indicate dominance in age, and it continues to grow throughout the cassowary's lifespan. The theory number two, I'm going to break your fucking tablet. Theory number two speculates that it helps push aside forests, underbrush, and vegetation as they're darting through the forest. Three, used for mating. And four is more of a hypothesis, but some think that the cask actually helps them with communication by amplifying sounds acting as a resonance chamber. And actually, a super exciting study was published in February and of last year, and it found that the cask actually acts like a thermal window. So put that more simply or in layman's terms, it helps the animal dissipate heat. You know, like you'll see those um, hoofstock in Africa that have those big old horns. That's actually how they dissipate some of their heat. And I will post a link to the study. It's super interesting. Um, and as for Sam, I'm going to let you tell us all about their feet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's it's definitely one of their most prominent and and scariest features. Um, so and most intimidating. So, like you mentioned before, they do have a super. They have super sharp claws, and I'm going to call them claws. We can call them talons, whatever. But they're super sharp, and they're on the end of each toe. Uh, but the claw on the innermost toe is a literal five inch dagger, and their legs are incredibly strong. And one of the most impressive things to see. Um, is for them to jump up into the air using those big, strong, crazy legs. And when they jump, they jump with both legs at the same time. Um, both legs come down at the same time uh, with their feet straight out in front, kind of pointed a little bit with that dagger out. And the dagger toe part is the integral part in how they defend themselves and why they are so dangerous and and scary. And yeah, their Yeesh. feet their, their feet are the most impressive, craziest part of them, I think. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. So as for predators and th threats, humans, uh, they don't really have any natural predators except for uh, loss, fragmentation, and habitat modification. Vehicles, unfortunately, in certain parts of Queensland, they get hit quite often. And then actually dog attacks are pretty bad, uh, whether it's wild dogs or domesticated dogs. They will definitely track them down. Holy fuck, your computer. They will definitely track them down mm -hmm. and like kill them if given the opportunity and pigs believe it or not similar kind of thing pigs are fucking mean so can't really say i'm surprised about that one as for fun facts and human encounters they can run at speeds of up to 31 miles per hour which is actually incredibly fast so they i kill just imagine people we, yes they do kill people so if you live in australia do not feed the cassowaries so not only can it make them more aggressive, but it also makes them more susceptible to dog attacks because they're now coming into residential areas. And I'm sure Sam can go into more detail about why you should not let wild animals get comfortable in urban areas. Yes, exactly. This is this is one of the things that we used to always talk to guests about when we did the alligator talk in, in Florida. Um, <laughs> feeding a wild animal is essentially a death sentence for that animal. Uh, feeding any kind of wildlife is never a good idea. It not only creates a dependency on humans for their resources, it creates animals that are not afraid of human areas like neighborhoods, parks, campgrounds, all of the places that humans like to feel safe to live and to be on vacation. So this is extremely dangerous for humans in those areas. Um, this happened a lot in Florida with the dumb, dumb idiots feeding alligators that were around. Um, this created the alligators that would roam into neighborhoods, end up on porches, ended up eating their pets. Uh, these animals uh, that are comfortable enough to go enter and stay in human territory are ultimately euthanized when they are caught because they are unable to be let back into the wild. Um, they will not stay in the wild. They will and do find their way back to humans, which can lead to injured and dead humans. And then everyone wants to complain about these animals being in their spaces uh, when it is totally the humans creating the situations, not the animals' faults. And that's my diatribe about that. I'm very passionate about not feeding wildlife. Don't do it. <laughs> Sometimes they exterminate the animal. That's yeah. terrible. That's why it's a death sentence. They they have to euthanize the animals that are that are comfortable with doing this because it just it's it's intrusive to the humans and can be deadly. I was reading about a bear 
in the newspaper in California. It was Monrovia, California, um, by the San Gabriel Mountains, and the bear came down. Fortunately, they tranquilized the bear and brought him back, as opposed to just snuffing the bear out. I really hate that when they snuff the animal out. But Mm -hmm. anyway, I guess the bear went back in the woods and took a shit. Fantastic. Well, it's like that time up in Tahoe, you know, a couple, uh, probably close to like 10, 15 years ago, the bears were coming really close to like neighborhoods and stuff. And so then people were putting peanut butter on their kids' faces and letting the bears lick the peanut butter off their kids' oh, faces. Dumb as shit. That, ugh. Did you ever see that video, Sam, of the bear opening up the dumpster and they climb in the dumpster? I mean, they're smart. Yeah. Yeah. They're very smart. Yeah. They also absolutely. peek into people's houses and mm-hmm. uh, find food. So they, yeah, they're, they're clever. Yeah, don't feed the bears. Yeah. Back to the birds, though. Okay. They're also fantastic swimmers. So, Sam, I remember... You, yes, Sam yes. was actually talking about one of them having a nice large pond. So, did you ever see him swimming around Yeah, there? so just mostly just Ginger. Ginger loved to swim. Um, she had that real nice big pond in her exhibit, and she would regularly get in there. Um, she would bathe in there just like you would see little birds doing in a bird bath. She would flop around and splash around and, and make a bunch of noise and and mess. Sydney, on the other hand, wasn't much of a fan of the water. Um, when he was in that exhibit where the pond was, the most I ever saw him do was just stand in it up to like where his, like his, his calves, I guess his, his little cassowary calves would be um, just with his feet in. And, but that wasn't even very often. He wasn't a big fan, but Ginger oh, loved it. Okay. So speaking of how high they can jump uh, when they're attacking or trying to defend themselves, they can jump seven feet in the air and these birds are also known as the world's most dangerous birds, and rightfully so. Yep. I have a little fun fact. They have yes. been known, and of course, you could probably imagine this after what we've been talking about, how they kick and kill people, but they've been known to disembowel people with just that one swift kick with both of those feet, just slice them right down the torso, and then their guts just come right out. So that's that's how crazy, crazy strong it is and dangerous they are. I'm surprised somebody hasn't like trained them to be like, guard animals you know because you can't train a fucking dinosaur you're not going to mess with that thing that is better than a pit bull or whatever you can find because that thing will mess you get some of the get a couple of them women cassowaries yeah get out of there babe and protect this place and nobody's going to come messing with you yeah the problem with that is they'd also they'd get you too they don't care (laughs) you're in their territory too so right. that's, that's the that's the issue with that. They don't they don't discriminate. Typical woman biting the hand that feeds her. Okay, <laughs> <Sorry. open up. laughs> Dear Christ. Oh God, we are so gonna get some hate mail. Anyway, so and as Guy mentioned earlier, no surprise, Florida man was keeping one as a pet and was attacked and died by and died from his wounds. Uh, in 1999, a study that the Queensland Park and Wildlife Service did, they tallied 221 attacks in Queensland alone, and 150 of those attacks were on humans. In April 2012, a tourist was chased off a cliff by a cassowary. He survived. In November of last year, a, tour- a tourist was actually filmed being chased by one. Actually, if you look up cassowary attacks on YouTube, you can find quite a few videos of people being chased, and they're actually pretty funny. And then one, actually, a zookeeper was in the uh, cassowary's exhibit and was the bird was like pecking him and kicking him and stuff. And it was like, ah, probably shouldn't be in there. But uh, in June of 2019, cassowary chicks were seen chasing a school bus in Karen's and experts say that they were searching for food. Unfortunately, the reason for this peculiar behavior is that the people are feeding them and they recognize that there are people in vehicles and that, you know, if they go up to these vehicles, they will be fed. So like as Sam said, that's going to be a distance because, you know, if someone eventually they're going to end up getting hit. So they will chase, headbutt, peck, jump, and slash with their feet when threatened. And like I said earlier, there are tons of YouTube videos of people being attacked or chased down by cassowaries. You should definitely go give those a quick look. And as for their conservation status, unfortunately... Oh, my God. Oh, that was me. Sorry. That was my... I know it was you. (laughs) It's been you the whole time. (laughs) So unfortunately, these modern-day dinosaurs are listed as vulnerable. And under Australian federal law, they are listed as endangered. In Australia, there are around 2,500 in the wild. In New Guinea, the estimate is between 6,000 to 15,000. And before we go, Sam actually won an award for working with these modern-day dinosaurs. So I'm going to let her take the floor on this and tell us all about her. Yes. I didn't know you were going to ask me this. Okay, so I did. (laughs) So um, one of of the most 
the things, the biggest accomplishments and one of the most proudest things that I did while I was a zookeeper um, was training these two. Um, so we needed to, to get them vaccinated for equine encephalitis. There had been um, a couple of deaths at a zoo in Virginia of their double wattled cassowaries. And so it got around in the zoo world that um, we needed to get these things a vaccine, you know, just to be on the safe side. So it had to be done soon. And they came to me and said, hey, do you think that you could um, train these two to receive voluntary injections? Because if they don't have voluntary injections. We have to um, anesthetize them, put them to sleep, and catch them up, and then um, give them their vaccinations, which of course is never fun for any of us, not them, not us. So I said, yeah, I let's do it. So um, I actually, in the long, in, over a couple month or so, couple months, I trained um, Sydney and Ginger to line up against the fence while um, uh, and have get an injection from the veterinarian um, and be calm about it and have it not even um, phase them one bit. So in, and we actually did it. And then, um, so I, I wrote that I had looked up to see if I could find anybody else who had ever trained these animals for voluntary injections. And of course I couldn't find any. So after I was done um, doing that, I wrote a professional paper about the experience of uh, what it was like to, to train these two and how we did it and all that stuff. And I ended up presenting that paper at two different national conferences for some, some pretty big um, organizations that are in the zoo world. Um, so Don't that be was, humble. A, it was a lot of fun. I'm just saying, and, but it, I mean, it helped it, it, that in the long run really did help. Um, I've got, I still get emails from, from keepers at other zoos that say, Hey, weren't you the one that did the, the cassowary injection training? Um, can you give me some information? Can you send me your presentation? Anything, anything that you can do to help me help our animals have, you know, better lives, less stressful lives. It's, it's what we do. We, we try to make their lives less stressful as they can be and keepers. So I've helped other keepers and other zoos and other cassowaries, um, get, get injection trained, which is a really cool thing. And then I also won um, a behavior of the year award from the IAATE um, organization and it's the International Association of Avian Trainers and Educators. So that was, that was a big accomplishment. So it was a lot of fun, a lot of work, but we did it. Making the ultimate sacrifice for training these animals to get an injection. Unfortunately, she's been disemboweled, but. (laughs) No, it was all done protected contact through, through their fence. So that's, wow. yeah, so it, it makes it a little bit more challenging when you can't have an animal imagine. that you can go in with. But, um, but yeah, it was all, all protected contact. Never was I ever in, in any kind of danger. Um, but it, it was, it was a big deal and, and it was, it was a lot of fun and I'm, I'm glad I did it. Yeah. So basically Sam's a complete and total badass. Right. She's being well, I don't know about that. Incredibly Maybe humble. Velociraptor. You're, you're Right. So dad, given the opportunity, would you go swimming with a cassowary or the taper? Oh, I'll do the taper any day. So yeah, no cast for sure. You wouldn't even try to pet one. What if you got to pet one? Uh, I would have to have like one of those suits of armor on. So recognize the music. Yes. No, turn that off. So yes, you would pet one. With your hand, I would pet it. Okay, that sounds like some creepy Hannibal Lecter. No, Buffalo Bill shit. But anyways, anyways, um, what do you think you would do if you came across a cassowary in the wild? I'd run up a tree. I would actually like to see that. See you try to climb a tree. But anyways, so that is our very cool modern day dinosaur, avian friend, the cassowary, the southern one. Definitely send us an email. We want to hear from you. Like us, subscribe, or whatever it is that you can do on whichever platform you listen to us on. Thank you, as always, for listening to us. And thank you to Sam and you don't hear the music? for being here today. Can you turn that shit off? It's very appropriate what music. It is. You don't- what is it? How is it appropriate? It's the Jurassic Park theme song. Oh, Come now on. I hear it. <laughs> you, again, you are going to get a suit. Oh, there it is. Used by yeah, permission. From the Jurassic Park YouTube channel. Okay. It's had yeah. 35 it's million listings. Of course it's fitting. I always yes. have fitting music. Yes, you All do. All right. We're done. My ass is hurting. Fantastic. <laughs> Get off the floor. Yeah. Fantastic. Bye. We'll see you next, next week, time. guys. Bye. Bye.